Good afternoon. Um, it's very good to be with you all. Uh, for the past few weeks, um, we've been looking at community uh, here at Redeemer Burlington. We've been doing a, a sermon series on community. Uh, and we've been using Roman 12 uh, as a guide, um, as a guide helping ask and, and answer questions like, what is Christian community and, and how does it work, and so on. Well, today we are coming to the end uh, of that chapter, and therefore we're coming to the end of our sermon series. The end of this chapter, uh, verses 14 and 21, deal specifically with community and conflict. As we get ready to look at these verses in some greater detail, it's helpful to remember who it is that Paul is addressing, you know, who this letter of Romans was for. It was written to the church. It was written to a bunch of sinners who have been saved by grace, a bunch of sinners saved by grace who are trying to live life together as a community. Because everyone then and and now everyone here gathered in this room now uh, is a sinner, uh, and because we live in the midst of a sinful world, conflict is unavoidable uh, and it's inevitable. Because you and I are sinners, uh, despite our best intentions, we can And we will hurt one another. Conflict is going to come from outside of this community, but conflict is going to rise within this community as well. Because we are sinners, this is true. But the good news is this. Uh, While we are sinners, we're not just sinners. We are sinners who have been saved by grace. And what that means is that we have a, a Savior who has lived for us and who has died for us and forgives us our sins And it means that we have real resources as well as power to meet conflict with love and forgiveness and grace. So what I want to do today is uh, three things, really. First, I I want to look at the commands that Paul is giving us here uh, in verses 14 through through 21. In so many words, what Paul is telling us to do is not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. And I want to unpack that a little bit. Secondly, uh, I want to point out where we can find the strength to do this. And thirdly and finally, I want us to consider what happens when we actually do this. So, let's begin. First, what is Paul commanding us to do? Well, verse 21 uh, presents us with a summary of sorts. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and and turn to that passage. Uh, In verse 21, Paul says there, Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Paul gives this message in a variety of ways, uh, starting with verse 14. He says there in verse 14, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Then in verse 17 and 18, he says, Repay no one for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And then in the next verse, verse 19, Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, uh, but leave it to the wrath of God. And he goes on to say in verse 20, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Finally, we come again to that summary statement in verse 21, uh, where Paul says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So this is what Paul is telling us to do. He's saying that when you and I are uh, in the midst of conflict, you know, when people are 
hurting us with the things that they say or, or hurting us with the things that they do, we shouldn't try and hurt them back. We're not to repay evil with evil, but we are to pursue peace instead. Don't seek revenge, Paul says, but seek reconciliation. You know, don't bite back and, and don't strike back, but bless instead. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, obviously, all of these commands presuppose some sort of conflict or, or, or persecution, don't they? Uh, though the situations and the, the details may vary. The conflict may be of a, a verbal kind, or it might be physical. This could be conflict that you have at home, or conflict that you experience in church, conflict that you have in the workplace, or conflict that you just experience out there in the world. This conflict may be seemingly small. You know, maybe your, your brother hits you in the arm, or maybe your best friend has said something mean behind your back that really hurts your feelings. Or maybe a more serious matter, like somebody hurting you or someone that you love. Though I tremble to say it, Paul's commands even apply to situations as awful and as egregious as rape and murder and genocide. To all Christians, in all places, in all times, experiencing any sort of conflict, Paul is saying, do not bite back, do not strike back, but bless instead. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul is telling us to meet conflict with love and forgiveness and grace. He's saying, don't curse, but bless. You know, don't repay evil for evil, but if you're able, live peaceably with all. Don't seek revenge. Bless your enemies. If they're hungry, give them something to eat. If they're thirsty, give them water to drink. In other words, be gracious. Show good to people who do not deserve it. Meet conflict with love and forgiveness and grace. Be kind to your enemies. Show good to people who don't deserve it. Again, don't bite back, don't strike back, but bless instead. Don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, I know this raises some questions. I have them, and I'm sure you have them as well. And I'm going to do my best to anticipate what those are and, and do my best to answer them. But before we go on to point number two, let me just point out right here at the outset that Paul is not some starry-eyed optimist. You know, he's not an idealist. He doesn't have his head off in the clouds. He's very much planted here on planet Earth, and he's very much a realist. Like I said, he understands that we're sinners who live in the midst of a sinful world, and therefore conflict is unavoidable and, in, 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 and inevitable. But Paul wants us to know that while we ought to love our enemies and, and do good to them, sometimes it doesn't lead to the ideal outcome. You know, sometimes peace isn't possible. Sometimes, sadly, there are just people in this world who hate you and want to hurt you. And there's really no getting around that. And in those, in those instances, your really best option is restraint. Look at verse 18 again with me. Paul says there, if possible, 
Okay, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Paul is acknowledging here that sometimes this isn't going to work. Okay, sometimes peace isn't possible. But he's saying, don't let that be your fault. Okay, if you've been wronged, show grace. Work towards forgiveness. You know, seek reconciliation. But if this person doesn't receive grace and they continue just to hate you and and hurt you, well, that is their problem. It's his or her problem. It's not yours anymore. Right? But Paul says, don't be somebody who adds fuel to the fire. Right? Don't seek revenge. Don't retaliate. Don't bite back. Don't strike back. But bless instead. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, this brings me uh, to point number two. You know, how on earth is it possible to live like this and to love like this? You know, to put a finer point on it, where on earth do we find the strength to do this? Well, I'd like to call attention to a few sources of strength. The first source of strength is Jesus and his ministry. Okay, the ministry of Jesus is the first source of strength. If you read this section carefully, okay, you, you might notice, or you, you might have already noticed, that Paul is practically quoting Jesus and the Gospels word for word. For example, in Matthew 5.44, Jesus says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In Luke 6.28, Jesus says, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. In Matthew 5, 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers. And in Mark 9, 50, he said, Be at peace with each other. And in Luke 6, 27, Jesus says, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Okay, not only did Jesus say very much the same things that Paul is saying here, Jesus actually did them. You know, for example, when when Jesus was arrested, uh, and uh, he was being held uh, by the Pharisees, Uh, a man struck him. And and when he was struck him, probably, presumably in the face, Jesus didn't strike the man back, but rather he responded with a question. He said to the man, If what I said to you is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? A short while later, when Jesus was being led to his death, and people were mocking him as they crucified and they killed him, Jesus prayed for these people. He prayed for for his enemies. And he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, said his friend and disciple Simon Peter. You know, Peter wrote a letter too uh, to the church, and he had this also to say about Jesus. He said, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You know, Jesus is, a shi- Jesus is a shining example of what this ethic looks like. If you're wondering, what is Paul talking about? You know, what does this really look like in action? You don't, you don't need to look any further than Jesus Christ because he did this perfectly. Okay? Jesus' example is important to us because it, it gives us something that we can see and, and something that we could uh, approximate, something that we could attempt to follow. But hear me when I say this. Jesus' example by itself 
will never change you. Okay? Jesus' example by itself is not a source of strength. Jesus' example by itself won't enable you to live and to love like this. Here's what I'm getting at. If you want to be able to love like this, you need to know, first of all, that you've been loved like this. Okay, let me say that again. If you want to be able to love like this, you need to know, first of all, that you've been loved like this. Okay, you don't need just to know Jesus the example. You need to know Jesus the Savior who loved and forgave and blessed his enemies, meaning he loved and forgave and he blessed you. The, the ability to love and forgive your enemies starts with the knowledge that God loved and forgave his enemies. Loved and forgave you and he loved and forgave me. Once you were an enemy of God, but now by the blood of Christ you've been brought near. You know, Jesus' ministry for us, which we could summarize really as the gospel, is crucial if we're going to be able to love like this. We need to know deep in the core of our being that we ourselves have been loved like this. If we don't know that, it's almost impossible to do this. But if we do know it, that God has loved us like this, that's a source of strength. There are other sources of strength that are available to us. I want to call attention to those as well. The second is the Holy Spirit. Okay, the second source of strength, uh, if we were to not bite back and strike back, but to move towards people with blessing and with grace, we need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who, who lived inside of Jesus when he walked this earth and lives inside every single human being who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You know, I watched the movie uh, the other night. Uh, the movie is called uh, As I Forgive. Uh, the movie is a documentary uh, about the Rwandan genocide. And specifically, it follows two Tutsi women whose families were wiped out in that genocide. Uh, one of those women, uh, a woman named Chantal, lost 30 family members in those killings. Well, in the documentary, the man who murdered her father uh, has an opportunity to meet with her face to face and to ask for forgiveness. Well, Chantal struggles to forgive this man. Okay, she's angry, like justifiably so, and she wants revenge. She wants to hurt the man who hurt her and her family so badly. And she says early on in the film, I have no mercy in my heart for this man. But eventually this man is released from prison. He and a bunch of others who have committed similar crimes. It turns out that the prison system in Rwanda just wasn't large enough to hold all the people who were implicated in these killings. And so they just had to let some of them go. And now this man who murdered her father is living just down the road from where Chantal lives. And he's afraid to see her because of all the shame that he has inside of himself. And she's afraid to see him because of how she might respond to him when she sees him. But a counselor meets with them both one-on-one, -on -one and, and he arranges a, a, a meeting to take place. Well, when Chantal meets her father's killer, right, and he asks for forgiveness, she's not able to give it right away. She's not able to forgive the man right away. But she lets on, she says, but I'm praying, and I need help. 
And she doesn't forgive him right away, but she's on her knees praying for strength to do what she feels she's being asked to do. And I am confident that when she is on her knees and she's praying that prayer, Lord, help me to forgive, the Holy Spirit is abiding with her and ministering to her, reminding her of the gospel, reminding her that, Chantal, God loved you when you were his enemy. God moved towards you in grace. God forgave your sins. Holy Spirit is bringing those things to memory. He's also giving her strength and poise and courage, right? To move towards this man in love and forgiveness and grace. I am confident that the Holy Spirit was doing this because in six months' time, she was able to forgive this man. They were able to live together in peace. I'm confident that the Holy Spirit was doing this work on her heart because Jesus promises to give his Holy Spirit to everyone who asks him for it. Everyone who, like Chantal, says, I need help. If you look in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Knowing Jesus loved and forgave us, his ministry to us and the gospel is crucial if we are to love like this. But so is the power of the Holy Spirit within us. There's just one more source of strength I want to call attention to before we move on. And that is we need to have confidence in the justice of God. We need to have confidence in the justice of God. Now I know that sounds a little abstract, but I want to bring that down a little bit and give an example just from the past two weeks. You know, as you know, two Mondays ago, uh, terrorists bombed um, the Boston Marathon, killing three innocent people and, and injuring over 200. You know, later that night I was riding in the car uh, with Joseph, and I remember telling you, um, I'm really sad about what happened, and I'm really angry. You know, I, I said to Joseph, I hope that they catch this guy, because whoever did this deserves to die. Since that day, I've been thinking about the day's events and I've been thinking about what I said and I've been sitting here with this text and I've felt a lot of tension. You know, I've wondered, what is the relationship between justice and love? You know, how does the wrath of God, which Paul alludes to in verse 19, fit with these commands to love and bless our enemies? You know, how does our desire for justice and for blood square with the imperative to forgive? You know, are those things at odds with one another? And I've really come to the conclusion that they're not. Okay? When you or I are the victims of some sort of evil or injustice, when we see goodness and beauty and truth being violated and vandalized, when we see innocent people getting hurt, it is right to get angry. 
And it is right to want justice. Okay? Those things are aspects of our being made in the image of God. You know, I'm confident that God saw what happened on Monday, and it doesn't, he doesn't like it either. Right? It wounds his heart too. What those men did was evil, and it's wrong. And it angers God, right? He hates it too. So when we say, this is evil, this is wrong, you know, this deserves the death penalty even, God is right there with us saying, you're right. It is evil. It is wrong. It does deserve the death penalty. And blood ought to be shed. But it's precisely at this moment that we need to pause and we need to do something with these feelings of righteous anger. We need to go to the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, on the cross, God took all of our sins upon himself. All of our sins. Your sins, my sins, even guys like Zohar's sins too. Got punished there at the cross. Our sins, which do indeed deserve the death penalty, got the death penalty. Blood, which ought to be shed, was shed. Justice, which God demands and which we ourselves are demanding, was executed in a force there at the cross. On the cross, justice was enforced and the wrath of God was satisfied. You know, in Deuteronomy 32, we read about God's sword of judgment. Here's what's amazing, friends is that instead of wielding that sword of judgment against us, God takes that sword of judgment and he wields it against himself. He, instead of slaying us with his sword of judgment, he takes that sword of judgment and he plunges it into his very own heart on the cross. All of the sins which we should be punished for, he took punishment in our place. You know, what does this have to do with love and forgiveness? Well, I'd say it has everything to do with it. You know, if I don't believe that justice was meted out there at the cross, if I don't believe that your sins or a guy like Zohar's sins were punished there, well, then my thirst for justice is never going to be quenched. I'm going to want to try and constantly get retribution and to inflict pain and hurt and harm on those who have hurt me. But if I do believe that justice was meted out there at the cross, that your sins and my sins and Zohar's sins too were, were punished there, well, I don't need a blood payment anymore because a blood payment's already been made. This crime which Zohar committed, it obviously deserves the death penalty. But friends, death penalty was made in Jesus Christ. This crime which deserves blood to be shed got blood. It got the blood of Jesus. The wrath of God was satisfied, and I'm saying to us, our wrath should be too. Here's, not, here's what I'm not saying, okay? I'm not saying that we should ignore what happened on Monday, or that we could somehow cast a blind eye to it. I'm, I'm not advocating ignorance, okay? We saw what happened. We feel what happened, okay? We can't ignore it. And we as a society have a responsibility to restrain evil. 
Okay? Very much in line with what we saw in verse 18, right? So let's restrain guys like Zilhar, but let's restrain our bloodlust as well. Okay? We don't need a blood payment for Zilhar anymore because a blood payment has been made. Jesus died for your sins and my sins, and he died for Zilhar's sins too. And because this is true, it is possible for us to lay our weapons down and move towards our enemies with love and forgiveness and grace. And this brings me to our third and final point. What happens when we actually do this? What happens when we don't bite back or strike back, but bless instead? When we're not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good? Well, when we don't bite back or strike back, but, strike back, but bless instead, we open the doors for repentance and healing to take place. Here I want to call attention to verse 20. Look there with me. Paul says there, If your enemy is hungry, we ought to feed him. If he is thirsty, we ought to give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Well, commentators have asked, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to heap burning coals on somebody's head? And if you spend some time doing a little bit of, little bit of research, uh, three suggestions will be given to you. Suggestions one and two say that the coals are a, a symbol of judgment or shame. Because in the Old Testament it is said that God will rain fiery coals on the wicked, some believe that the coals here are a symbol of judgment. And other people say that uh, the pain inflicted by the, the burning coals is a symbol of shame that is felt by an enemy who's been rebuked by kindness. But other people say that the coals are a symbol of repentance. And I believe that this view has a lot to commend it. Okay? According to an ancient uh, uh, Egyptian ritual, a repentant person, somebody who had, who had done wrong and is feeling sorrow and, and remorse for having done that wrong, would carry burning coals on their head as a symbol of their repentance before the afflicted party. Okay? If this is what Paul has in mind, and I think there's a good chance that this is what he's talking about, to heap coals on somebody's head okay, is to lead that person to a place of repentance. Okay, in other words, burning coals on, on somebody's head is a dynamic symbol of repentance that issues from a deed of love. This reminds me of a, of a story uh, that a friend told me uh, about a year ago. Uh, my friend's name is Sam Ferguson. He was, he was a preacher, uh, or he is a preacher, and he was preaching at a church in northern Virginia when he, when he told me this story. The day was December 27th, 1983. Okay, and the setting is a jail cell in Rome, in Rubibia Prison in Rome. And if you were to look into that jail cell on this day, you would see a pope and you would see a prisoner. The pope was Pope John Paul II, and the prisoner was a man named Mehmet Ali. Well, in the jail cell that day, okay, Pope John Paul II sat knee to knee with Mehmet Ali, and he held Mehmet's head in his hands, and he spoke to him quietly, and tenderly. Well, in order to fully understand uh, the significance of this scene, you need to know what happened two years prior. You see, two years prior, Mehmet Ali took a gun and he tried to kill Pope John Paul II. He shot him in the stomach and he shot him in the arm. But now, two days later, Pope John Paul is there with his would-be assassin, extending him love and grace and forgiveness. 
Well, this grace completely transformed Mehmet Ali. In 2005, following Pope John Paul's death, Ali said this, and I quote, I remember the Pope as the most respectable and kind-hearted human being of the 21st century. I would like to pay him a tribute in front of his tomb. Then, in 2007, Mehmet Ali, who was a Muslim, went public, announcing that he had converted to Christianity. And he said this, Once freed from prison, I would like to be baptized. I would like to do it in front of the media from all over the world, and I'd like to do it in the Vatican, exactly in front of St. Peter's Square, in the exact same spot I tried to kill John Paul. As my friend Sam put it so well, Pope John Paul's forgiveness extended such grace to Mehmet Ali that it transformed him from death into life. This is what happens when we show love and grace to our enemies. Okay, we open the door for repentance and healing to take place. We create space for transformation to occur. We create space where dead people can be brought back to life. Now, obviously, grace offered doesn't necessarily mean grace that is received. There are those who, like Mehmet Ali, receive grace, right? And they're led to a place of repentance and healing, right? They are transferred from death into life, and they are saved. But then there are those who reject grace, want nothing to do with it. And that's a perilous place to be, because people who reject grace are condemned. But that shouldn't stop us, friends, from showing grace to them. Okay, the fact that some people are going to reject grace is no excuse for us not to show grace. Okay? We can and we should because grace and forgiveness has been shown to us. Friends, Paul in this section is dealing with community and conflict. Because we are sinners in the midst of a sinful world, conflict is unavoidable. It is inevitable. Okay? It's going to occur. But because we are sinners who are saved by grace, we have the ability to meet conflict with love and forgiveness and grace. Okay? We can overcome evil with good. In order to do this, in order to, to love like this, we need to know that we've been loved like this. We need to know Jesus not just as an example, but as a Savior who, who died on the cross for our sins, who, who died for the sake of his enemies, who died for you and for me. We need his Holy Spirit too. And we need confidence also in the justice of God, trusting that sins were punished there, yours and mine and, and our enemies too. Okay? When we do that, we can move towards our enemies with love and forgiveness and grace. We can show good to those who do not deserve it. Because this is precisely what God does to us. When we show that kind of love and grace, grace that we ourselves have received, lives get changed. Our lives get changed. And the lives of others get changed as well. May God give us the strength to love and to live like this. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord, what you command us to do is so hard. And we so much need your help. And I pray, Lord, that you would fix our eyes on Jesus 
Help us to understand that you have loved us in exactly the same way you are asking us now to love those who hate us and hurt us and to hate you, who hate you and hurt you. Lord, we cannot do this on our own will. We really need your spirit abiding with us. And Lord, we need you to take us continuously to the cross and to trust in the finished work of the cross, to to trust in the work that you accomplished there. Lord, what a grace it is that you don't deal, you don't treat us as our sins deserve. You took on human flesh and you took our sins upon yourself and you punished our sins in your body so that we, that there is no more punishment left, that, that the wrath of God is fully satisfied. Because of that, Lord, would you enable us to, to move towards those who hate and hurt us with love and forgiveness and grace. Amen.